Well, hello again. Uh, so I want to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Um, for those of you uh, who uh, are, are just re- rejoining us maybe for the first time for the summer, um, last week we actually uh, didn't gather here. We, uh, we were part of a, a Xenia-wide church gathering uh, that was held at Shawnee Park, and we joined with 15 other churches um, to, to worship God. And um, how many of you guys were able to make it? It was actually pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. It was, it was one of those things where um, when we, we began, like there were some things I really, really loved about it. Like I loved the different traditions that were coming together and experiencing, you know, some of that, that flavor that was there. There were things about it that made me a little bit uncomfortable, you know, but um, this, the, the picture of the church coming together and, uh, uh, and, and sort of laying aside some of, our, uh, some of the things that keep us apart and, and coming together. Some of you guys um, who came, who, you don't even live in Xenia, um, and you came because it wasn't about Xenia. It wasn't about a place. Um, it wasn't about a building. It wasn't about um, anything but about lifting up the name of Jesus. And so uh, it was really beautiful. Um, and so I, I hope we do it again um, sometime soon. We'll, we'll see. Um, but to pick up where we were left off uh, two weeks ago, we were looking at the Lord's Prayer. And if you remember, the Lord's Prayer is not an uh, incantation that you can use to get God to do what you want him to do. It's not a means of uh, getting God to bend to your will, all right? What the Lord's Prayer essentially is, is about molding our hearts to look like his heart. It's essentially about um, us conforming to him, to see the world as he sees the world, to love what he loves, and uh, and to pursue uh, that relationship with him. And so, at the end of that, that pattern that Jesus gives for prayer, he gives two little parables. And uh, they're, they're really interesting little parables. They're not very long, um, but they're, they're arguments from lesser to greater, meaning he's going to he spotlight something small, and then he pulls back and say how much greater God is than that. The, the other thing about these parables is that they're really ridiculous, and, and intentionally so, and it's sort of like there's this pretext of, can you imagine this happening? Like, can you imagine? So, you know, the, the first little parable is, could you imagine, like, this neighbor who won't get out of bed and give his, his friends some bread when he's repeatedly asked? Or, could you imagine a father who, whose son asks him for an egg and he gives him a scorpion, right? Could you imagine, like, this, this sort of this ridiculous sort of uh, scenario? Well, um, this morning I'd like to introduce, you know, where we're going in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 12 by doing something similar. Um, now, the parables of Jesus are always good. They, they always work out. Um, I'm going to sort of try and attempt to do that, but forgive me if, if uh, well, his parables are better. So, uh, bear with me. Here's the story. Here's the, the, the parable. It's about Jack and Diane, two kids growing up in the heartland. And uh, Jack and Diane, they are, uh, they're a really young couple. They've just gotten out of college. Um, they, uh, they have a ton of student debt. Um, uh, Diane got a, a degree in social work. She's not, obviously not making very much money. Um, Jack has got an internship uh, with a software company. He wants it to turn. He's hoping that it'll turn into a full-time paying gig, but he doesn't know. If it does, there'll be a huge bump in salary, and he'll be able to support uh, Diane the way that, 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 that he wants to be able to support. But, but he's living with this sort of this fear and this anxiety that he's not going to get hired. Um, meanwhile, the two of them, you know, they're living in this little one-bedroom uh, apartment, this little tiny place, and, and they're dreaming about buying a house. 
And they spend mornings together before they head their separate ways to work um, looking at real estate on the internet. And they're looking at, you know, what neighborhood they want to live in and what size of house they want to live in. And, and she's got this dream kitchen and he's got this dream garage. And, and they have this, this desire to buy this house. Well, uh, one morning um, they, they head their separate ways off to work. Diane to her job and Jack to, to his software company. And a couple hours into the day, Jack gets a call. Diane was in an accident on her way to work, and it was severe. Uh, she had to be lifelighted to a, a, a hospital in, in Cincinnati. Um, they immediately took her into to surgery, and, uh, and surgeons are, are fighting to save her life. And this is the news Jack hears. And so he gets his car, and he drives to Cincinnati. Now, can you imagine that on the way to see his wife in the hospital or to, 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 to see what's going on, on his way to the hospital, can you imagine that his, his heart is filled with anxiety and fear over whether or not he's going to get the job? Could, can you imagine him driving uh, to, to Cincinnati and, and can you imagine that what he's thinking about is, 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 is the garage he's going to get to have? or, or the, the, the house and the acreage or whatever. He's, he's dreaming about a house. Do you imagine that that is what he's concerned about? See, he woke up in the morning and there was a set of fears and there was a set of desires that he had. He was, he was afraid that he wouldn't get a job, but he really, really wants a house. There's this fear and there's this desire within him. But in the blink of an eye, circumstances change. And all of a sudden, those, the, the, the fear that he had and the desire that, all of a sudden, those are meaningless. The fear and the desire gets completely unseated in his heart, and it is replaced with a bigger fear and a bigger desire, right? That happens to us in life, often through tragedies. God uses hard things and tragedies sometimes to, to open up our eyes to see what we're actually putting our trust in, what we're putting our hope in, the things that we're, we're scared of and the things that we really want and just how small those things are. How small those things are. Now, uh, Jesus tells better parables. And uh, whenever uh, human beings uh, try to describe divine truth using illustrations, at some point they always break down. But hopefully you could see two things and what, where we're going this morning. First, that what we think we fear and what we think we want can in an instant become meaningless when our circumstances change. I'll say that again. What we think we fear and what we think we want can in an instant become meaningless when our circumstances change. Secondly, when our circumstances change, our fears and our desires have the, the potential to apprehend a much bigger picture. When that, those circumstances change, we, we have the, the, the new insight to apprehend a much bigger picture. So this morning we're going to be in Luke 12. You could turn there with me now. Um, we have a lot to work through this morning. We're going to be verses 1 through 34. We're going to start in verses 8 through 12. Um, and uh, it, it's here that Jesus really uh, is going to address our fears and our desires this morning. And the need for them to be unseated and replaced. So verses 8 through 12. <clears throat> and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I'm gonna pause, uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll begin to, to work through our passage, okay? Heavenly Father, um, desperately need you this morning to remind us of what should be feared and what shouldn't, of what should be desired and what shouldn't. We forget easily. And because we fear the wrong things and because we desire the wrong things, uh, we sin. We sin, we sin against you and we sin against one another. We don't love you and we use people. And so Father, uh, I pray that you will just remind us this morning. Remind us of the truth of the gospel and our dependence upon your spirit inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just to sort of outline where we're going this morning, um, the first three verses of Luke chapter 12, there are, they serve as a transition from what's just happened, but also an introduction to a longer discourse of teaching that Jesus has that goes all the way through chapter 13, verse 8. Uh, we'll finish that up next week. Um, <clears throat> we'll look at verses 4 through 7, where Jesus is going to address fear, what fears need to be unseated and what those, those need to be replaced with. Uh, we're gonna skip over eight through 12. We'll come back to that at the end. Uh, in verses 13 through 34, we're gonna see Jesus address our desires and those desires that need to be unseated and what they need to be replaced with. And then lastly, we'll come back to the passage that we just read to open up our time together this morning. And we're gonna look at, basically there's, there's, there's two, two events that Jesus is alluding to. One is a judgment day. Uh, where, we'll, where we'll stand before God. But um, the other is sort of a, an ongoing daily um, event of, of, of denying or uh, acknowledging Jesus in the way that we live. Uh, and so we'll, we'll come full circle back down to that. All right, look at verses uh, one through three with me. <clears throat> in the meantime, when so many thousands of people, of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, so uh, just as a, a means of transition, Jesus was just having a really uncomfortable lunch at a Pharisee's house in which Jesus sort of calls them out on the fact that uh, Pharisees are whitewashed tombs, so to speak. Pharisees care about what's on the outside, but on the inside, uh, they're full of, 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 of uncleanliness. Um, they they are, are, are experts in, in obeying external laws. Um, they're all about um, doing the right thing and being seen uh, or avoiding the wrong thing and, and also being seen. But on the inside, um, th there's nothing but death, decay, and sin. But they're really good at the outside stuff. And so Jesus is, in this transition, he's saying, like, there's nothing that's on the inside of you that you can hide. There's nothing that you can, like, your heart is gonna be revealed. God is going to do something that's going to cause him and, and, and the world to see what is really on the inside of you. And, and so there's this warning to, to, to avoid the same hypocrisy of the Pharisees. There is something from uh, chapter 11 I wanna briefly talk about. 
Um, Jesus, uh, he casts out a demon in chapter 11, and then he gives us a little teaching on spiritual warfare. And the point that he makes there is that there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum within a human heart. There's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum within a human heart. What, what, what he means is that um, either your heart will be owned by the spirit of God, or your heart will be the residence of the spirit of the evil one. There's, 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 there's no other category. Your heart either belongs to God or it belongs to the enemy, right? There's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. Now, um, looking at fears and desires, just as there's no such thing as, as a, a, a spiritual uh, vacuum, there's also no such thing as a heart that doesn't have fear. The, the reality is, is human hearts were made to fear because they were made to worship. Fear is a form of worship. That which you fear is that which you give power over you. It's that which, you, which controls you. It's that which guides your life. What you fear is what you worship. Fear is a worship word. Uh, likewise, uh, there's no such thing as a heart that doesn't desire. We were made to want. We were made to desire. And again, desire is a worship word. The, the object of the desire is the thing that has the most control over us. The object of our desire becomes a practical God to us. So the problem isn't that, that we fear or, or, or that we, we desire. The problem is that we fear and desire the wrong things. Some religious philosophies like Buddhism say it, it, that the, the point of life is to get to a point where you don't fear anything or you don't desire anything. And that's just not possible because that's not the way we were made. We were made to fear and we were made to desire because we were made to worship. So um, Jesus, in this introduction, he's, he's, he's pointing to the fact that, that everything in you is going to be put on display. Everything's going to be brought to light. Uh, and that includes our fears and it includes our desires. Look at verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body <clears throat> and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Um, the, the, the type of fear that Jesus is referencing here is, is what the Bible calls fear of man. Proverbs 29, uh, 25 says, uh, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. Uh, the, the reality is, is, for many of us, we fear people. Uh, we, we fear their thoughts and their opinions of us. Uh, we, we fear what they can do to us. Uh, we, are, we are afraid of, uh, of maybe that boss that might withhold a promotion or the raise, or we're afraid of that, uh, that certain you know, group of people. And, uh, that maybe you want to be on the inside of that circle, but it's not fun to be on the outside of that circle. All sorts of relationships that we have, but we fear people, and it's a trap. And it's a trap because what you fear is what you worship, and, and those people that you fear are lesser little tiny gods. They're weak, and they're powerless. They're powerless. What Jesus says here is, is, is you, you, you may have people reject you. you. You may have people who condemn you. You might even have people in your life who want to, want to kill you, and maybe they're even successful at that, but you know what? Even those people you don't fear because their power is weak compared to the power of the one who could do so much more than that. 
so much more powerful than to just to take your life. The God of the universe can not only cast you aside, can not only reject you, but he can reject you eternally. That's the kind of power that he has. And what, what Jesus is saying here is that there's a fear in your heart that needs to be rejected and a new fear put in there to fear the Lord, to fear the one who has this power. Now, uh, I love what it says in verse six, how Jesus follows that statement up. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more of more value than many sparrows. He follows up this line, fear the one that can cast you into hell. Oh, and by that, the way, the, the one that can cast you into hell, like he cares about a sparrow. And another argument from greater to smaller, if he cares about a sparrow, how much more does he care about you? He knows how many hairs are on your head. He sees you. He knows you inside and out. There is this care and this concern that this God that could condemn you to hell has for you. Yes, he's powerful, but he's good. He's good. Um, It's interesting. Jesus says, um, fear him. And then two verses later, he says, fear not. And what Jesus is trying to to put on display for us is this this simple idea that there is a fear that leads to fearlessness. There is a fear that leads to fearlessness. That if you will fear the Lord, nothing else, nothing else can come and do you any damage or any harm. To fear the Lord is, is, is to become fearless of all other things. Nothing else can have power over you. Nothing else can have control over you. The question is, well, before we do that, um, fear of men is not the only fear that's out there. It's not the only fear that um, can hold us captive. It's not the only fear uh, that, that, the, that can make us, us worship it, so to speak. Uh, I want to give you a list uh, of, of fears, and I want you to I want you to see which ones uh, you struggle with, to be honest. Disapproval, rejection. Those are fear of man type fears. Failure, death, dishonor, pain, boredom, <laughs> lifelong singleness, a hard marriage, childlessness, Dishonorable children, bad employment, poverty, physical hardship, sickness, being overweight, public embarrassment, discomfort, sinful failures, messiness or dirt. That's real. Disorder, hunger, weakness, Divorce, abuse, adultery, the list could go on. Any of those stick out to you? Would you look at any of those things and say, because of my fear regarding this, it is, it's controlling my life. I make my life's decisions because of this. I, I do everything I can to avoid this bad thing from happening to me. Would, would you be able to look at this list and say there's at least one or two things on there that 
that are controlling your life, that functionally they're idols, realistically you're worshiping them. And are these things that can be unseated from your heart? And what would you replace it with? Maybe to ask this question, what could unseat those lesser fears to make room for the fear of the Lord? What could do that? Well, we're going to skip to verse uh, 13. I think this thing is just lowering on its own. I think that's the right height, but if I come back to it in a minute, it's lower. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I just keep reaching down and pulling it up. And I can't, okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I love how that responds. So um, the, the scene is this, and actually what we see um, in chapter 17 and 18 and 19, like there are people like in the audience just shouting random things at Jesus and he's responding to them. And so here's this guy and he, he said, I, I need your help to, to arbitrate a situation between me and my brother. And we don't really know much more than that. We know that um, in Jewish law, um, a, a person who had more than one son, the oldest son always got a double portion of the inheritance. So we don't know if this guy is the older son and he didn't get what he was supposed to get, or if he was the youngest son, and, um, and, and likewise, he didn't you know, get what he thought he should have got, or whatever it is. And Jesus' response to him is very telling. Um, he, he, his response to him contains two Old Testament allusions. Okay? The first is in this word, man. All right? Look throughout the Gospels and, and try to find places where Jesus just calls somebody man. Right? You don't see it. Right? It's not a common term for Jesus to use as somebody. Now, you and I might use the word man when we've forgotten somebody's name, right? How many of you this morning, if you'd be on, don't, don't raise your hands, but you, you came in here this morning, you saw somebody you recognized, you knew their name, two seconds later, the name disappeared from your mind, and you're standing right in front of them, and you're like, hey, man, how are you, Right? It happens, um, it happens to me. And if I've done that to you, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there's probably times people walk away from me like, I just had coffee with that guy last week. What a jerk. Anyway, um, but that's how we use the, the, the word, like, man. Okay, now there's one place in, uh, in the, the Old Testament that sort of has that, hey, man, or that the oh, man sort of a thing. And that's Micah 6.8 where it says this, um, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So Jesus' response to, to this individual who wants Jesus to settle this dispute is, is first of all to say, um, first thing that needs to happen is you need to reorder your heart and you need to want what God wants. Yeah, this, your problem, you, you want to make this about you know, uh, injustice, or you want to make this about your, your bro- not getting your fair share, or whatever. Bottom line is, is you want money. You want the material gain of this, and here's what God wants for you. God wants you to walk in justice. He wants you to have a loving kindness. He wants you to be humble before him. Do that, and that's what matters. He's told you, old man, what's required of you, and it's not to get a, a big inheritance. It's not to, to have financial wealth. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you this, this. The second thing um, that we see is there's an allusion here to Exodus 2.14. 
Uh, some of you guys might remember a guy named Moses. Uh, he was an Israelite, um, but he was adopted by uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. He was adopted into uh, the, the Egyptian uh, royal household, and he grew up first 40 years of his life as in, in, in that royal household of, of, of Pharaoh in Egypt. But he finds out, you know, he's an Israelite. And one day he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up an Israelite, and he steps in and he kills the, the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. He thinks that there are no witnesses. The next day, he sees two Israelites fighting, and he stops it. He, he, he stops them from fighting, and one of them turns to him and says, this man who made, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 214, where's that? Um, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Who made you a prince and an arbitrator over us? It's almost the exact same language that Jesus uses of, of, of this guy. Jesus is pointing back to Moses, why? Well, um, Moses, uh, if you know the story, after that point, um, because he's been found out, the, the murder, he runs into the wilderness, he spends the next 40 years herding sheep, and God humbling him and getting ready for him to go back. He has this divine encounter, and God sends him back uh, to Egypt in order to, to get Pharaoh to set his people free. He becomes the, this, this redeemer figure, this savior figure for the people of, of Israel. And it's only after he saved them and brought them out into the wilderness that he becomes an arbitrator and a judge. He judges over their affairs and things like this. What Jesus is saying is, I'm a better Moses. I didn't come to, to, to listen to your squabbles. I came to save you. I came to save you from slavery to sin. Yes, one day I will be that judge. But right now I'm here to save you. He's a better Moses. Um, it goes on, verse 15. And your guard, and uh, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, sort of. Um, uh, highlight the, the kind of, uh, of, of desire that, that, uh, that Jesus is, is talking against. He tells this story of, of a rich farmer, and he's about to have a bumper crop. He's about to have a, a really, really large harvest, maybe the largest one he's ever uh, experienced before, and so he's going to do what he doesn't normally do. On a typical year, uh, a farmer like this would uh, take the, the, the harvest, put some of it aside in barns or silos or whatever, and, uh, and hold on to it for himself and his family. Right? The rest he would sell. The community would benefit from it, like he would benefit from it, but he's, he's sharing in the produce of the land, and, and the community gets to buy the grain. This year, he's not going to do that. This year, he's going to tear down his little barns, and he's going to build great big barns so that he can hold on to the grain. In other words, he's not going to sell it to people who need it. He's going to hold on to it. He will sell it in, in future years when the price is inflated, and then he can make a big profit. In other words, he's going to get rich off the needs of other people. 
And if you know God and his heart for people and how we're supposed to love our neighbors, this is not okay. Now, we, uh, we would look at what he's doing as just, that's just good capitalism. Like, he's taking his, and he's going to do what he wants with it, and he's, he's going to amass his fortune, and this is the American way. And God says, no. It may be the American way. It's not my way. You see, that, that there's an attitude that we're supposed to have of being rich toward God, and we're rich toward God in the way that we love him and that we love the people that he's, he's placed in our lives put around us. But this man is guilty of uh, amassing a fortune just for himself. Verse 15, I'm sorry, um, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. It's interesting how fear and desire are closely related. Right? When you don't have the, the object of your desire, how fearful you can become or how fearful you are about never getting the object of your desire. If you, if, I want to give you another list and it's a list of desires that is sort of uh, the, the, the corresponding uh, desires to those, uh, those fears I mentioned earlier. It's like the, the, the two different sides of the same coin. Um, listen to this and, and see if uh, it, these are, are desires that you might have that are ruling in your heart. How about approval, acceptance, success, money, sexual pleasure, honor, emotional pleasure, entertainment, marriage, children, a good marriage, good children, good employment, possessions, sport, health, Body image, food, drugs or alcohol, personal holiness, cleanliness, order, peace and quiet, ease, power, sleep. Now, most of these things in and of themselves are not bad things. But can you see how pursuing one of these things could become an idol and a god to you? that if you build your life around it? I'll, I'll, let's pull out one as an example. Personal holiness. You would look at that, how would that be a sin? Personal holiness. It's becoming a Pharisee. It, it, it's pursuing uh, the, this, the, this notion of, uh, uh, of being all right on the outside and pure in the eyes of people. And in the end, it, it leads to broken relationships and pride and arrogance, right? But can you, you look at this list and you see like there, there's good things here, but there are good things that can be twisted and become very bad things. There are things that be, can become God things, things that you worship, things that you build your life around. The, the reason you go to work in the morning is in order to get this. The, the reason why you, you build your life in such a way is in order to accomplish that. Like it, it can be controlling and consuming of all of our life. It can become a functional God. Jesus' response to that, you see it in verse 31. He said, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. In other words, all of those desires, as good as they may be, shouldn't be sitting on the throne of your heart. 
Only God should be sitting on the throne of your heart. You see, if we seek the kingdom, you can't have the kingdom apart from the king. You seek the king. Your desire is the king. Your desire is him. If he's seated on on the throne of your heart, then all the other things will be added. All the other things will, will, will come. You can trust him for those other things. But he needs to be the one seated on the throne. And the point that Jesus is making is this. There is a desire that will quench all other desires. There is a desire which will quench all other desires. The truth is God made you to desire. He made us to desire. He made us to want good relationships. He, want, he made us to want sexual pleasure. He made us to want success. He made us to want these things. They are not bad things, but he, he's made us to find these things in him. He's the one we go to to have our desires met. There is a desire that will quench all other desires. The section closes in verses 32 and 30 through 34. It says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I want you to think about that for a sec. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, God, God wants to give you the world. Here we are day after day, and the reason why we're getting up out of bed is so that we can go and get the things of the world. And here is Jesus saying, God actually wants to give you the world. He wants to give it all to you. Um, Keep going. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Wow. Does he literally mean that? Do you think Jesus literally means for you to go and sell your possessions and give it away? think he does but here's the thing if you went and gave away all your possessions um, would in its absence you find yourself just lusting and, and desiring after all the things you just gave away so what would be the point so how does God get it out of your hands in a way that you're willing to let it go keeps going Uh, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? Where is it? What do you want? More than anything, what is changing and shaping your life? Where is that treasure found? Find it, and you'll find where your heart's at. I think oftentimes the heart's not in the right place. Well, let's go back, looking at verses 8 through 12 once more. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Um, There's some difficult things in here. First thing I want to point out is that um, there was one in Jesus' audience, one of his own disciples, who denied him three times one night, Peter. Peter, however, would go on 
to be a pillar of the church. He would go on to write uh, books in the Bible. He would go on to proclaim the gospel all over. And so Jesus isn't saying that one night of, of denying him, one failed uh, evening of, of messing it up really, really bad means that you're out. What he's saying is that there's a lifelong trajectory. And how are you living your life? Is it on a daily basis that you are going through life acknowledging him, acknowledging what he's done, acknowledging who, who he really, really is to you? Or are we going through life denying him? You see, we ask the question, what could unseat those fears, those lesser fears from our hearts and replace them? What could unseat those lesser desires and replace them? What event in history is, is that, that tragic sort of eye-opening event that causes us to change all of our priorities in light of it? And it's the cross. The Son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he lives the life that we can't live. He was righteous. And, and another way of defining Christ's righteousness is found in the fact that what he feared was only the Father. And he demonstrated that through obeying him even to the point of death and death on a cross. The only fear Jesus had was of the Father and it was a holy fear. Another way of, of, of talking about Christ's righteousness is, is when you look at his desires, the only desire that ruled him was his desire for the Father. That is not true of us. And there's none of us that could accurately say, I am only or have only let the fear of God rule my life. None of us can say that. There's none of us who can say, I have only let my desire for my relationship with God rule my life. The truth is, is we have turned anywhere, everywhere, in fear and desire and sinned against him. And so Jesus comes and he takes our place and in exchange for these fearful, lustful lives, he gives his righteous life. And God's wrath comes down on him instead of on us. We go free and he's condemned. That's the cross that changes our perspective. You think about Jack and Diane. And what if, what if everything turns out okay? What if she's able to walk out of that hospital with her husband. How long would it be before Jack goes back to the same old anxiety and the same old desires? How long will it be? You think about your own life. Have you encountered life-changing moments, maybe even tragic moments that have caused you to stop and realize that what you've been afraid of or what you've been wanting really doesn't matter in light of what's just happened. Have you ever been through that? And then have you ever found yourself on the other side of that somewhere down the road and you've gone straight back to the old anxieties and the old desires and lusts? Because we forget. We forget. You know why we come here every Sunday? It's to be reminded. And if there's ever a Sunday where you come here and you have not been reminded of the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and what it does for you, then somebody's really messed up. Because we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of what has been accomplished for us by Jesus at the cross. 
What Jesus says here in, in these verses 8 through 12, he's talking about acknowledging him and what he's done. We need to be reminded every day. We need to remind ourselves every day. Acknowledging him before the world. There's another verse I want to talk about here, and it's verse 10, and it's kind of a hard one to understand. It says, uh, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does it mean to blaspheme the, the Holy Spirit? We don't use the word blaspheme a lot. We don't accuse each other of blasphemy a lot. But essentially what it means is it, it means to deny the Holy Spirit who he is and what he has done. It is a denial of the identity and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Here's the, the reality. Every single one of us has been confronted by the Spirit of God. Every single one of us has become aware of who we are apart from God. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict of sin, to convict us of our need to be saved. Uh, some people think that, that Satan is the antithesis of Jesus. Uh, I think Satan is the antithesis of the Spirit, where Satan, his job is to uh, tempt you to sin and lead you into slavery. The Spirit's job is to convict you of sin that leads to repentance and freedom. Every single one of us has been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit telling us that we are sinners separated from God and in need of salvation. And for many of you, you've heard that and you agreed with that and you fell down on your knees and said, I want to be saved. I need it. You have gone to the cross. You've accepted his love and forgiveness for you and you have changed. And the Holy Spirit now lives in you. But there are some of you who do not believe that you are a sinner. You do not believe that you have offended God. You do not believe that you are his enemy. You think that you're okay, and you're not. What you are in fact doing is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and you are resistance to the conviction of him over your sin. And should you continue in this, you will find yourself before God, and he will not forgive you. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I want to end there. I want to end with the good news. And the truth is, is that this spirit not only brings us to repentance, but this spirit begins to take up residence in us and gives us a wonderful gift. Look, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I want to point out, one, Jesus says when they bring you. In other words, you will face trial. It's not if, it's when. And maybe your trial and my trial doesn't exactly look like Jesus' trial or Peter's trial or Paul's trial. Maybe it doesn't exactly look like, uh, like you're about to be martyred. But the reality is, is there are times in our lives where we are confronted by people who are questioning us and questioning our beliefs and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to answer rightly. And we have it. And that's the promise that's here. We have the Spirit of God living in us that will give us the words to say. Hopefully words that will bring that, that person or that individual into a relationship with God too. 
But you see, we're not alone. We're not alone. And I know when we look at this passage, we see a God of, uh, of judgment, a God who's gonna reveal all things, right? A God who, who, who has the power to cast into hell. But you know what? We also see a God who, who loves deeply, who cares about his creation. And he does not want anyone to perish apart from him. He's powerful. He's the most powerful thing in the universe. He is worth fearing. And he is worth being the object of your desire. But only so because he is good. And he is great. He is glorious and gracious. I'll close with this thought. The gospel is the direct contradiction of the American dream. The American dream is he who dies with the most toys wins. The gospel essentially says he who dies with empty hands while holding the cross wins. That there's this, this idea of letting go of all material things that have a hold on us in order to embrace Jesus. The gospel is the direct contradiction of the American dream. And the, the reality is that some of us are so steeped in this, this idea that we can pick up our, our, ourselves by our bootstraps and we can go out and accomplish and we can earn and we can win and we can amass a fortune. And for many of us, that's what we're laboring for. That's not the gospel. That will end badly. But there is something of value. There is something eternal in this cross of Jesus that we bear. Think about how you're shaping your life. Do you find yourself always busy, never being able to rest? You never have a Sabbath. Your vacations are, are hurried, and in fact, they're what you're living for. Somebody used the term this morning to me, working for the weekend. That all of life is so crazy and so busy and so hectic. Why are you doing that? Why are you living a life like that? Is your life shaped by the gospel, or is it shaped by the American dream? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, empty our hands. The American dream also tells us that he who works the hardest is the one who's acceptable. And the reality is the gospel says that you've done all the work. Jesus, you've done all the work for us. And our means of salvation and our means of forgiveness is simply accepting work done by somebody else. And we think we can save ourselves. And it's a lie. And ultimately, it's blasphemy. I pray that you would, again, convict of sin. If there's anyone here this morning who doesn't believe they need to be saved, show them why. Show them how. We give the rest of our time
this morning to you that you would be glorified and that we would be reminded of your cross in Jesus' name. Amen.